Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten speaking to you this morning from Ottawa, Canada. As longtime listeners of our show know, each and every week I have the pleasure of chatting with a uh, guest darshan, a guest scholar, rabbi, who helps us unpack the mysteries of the Torah portion, known in Hebrew as parashah. A section of Torah is read each week in synagogues throughout the world. This week, we continue our readings in the book of Exodus, where our parasha begins in Exodus 25, 1, and continues through Exodus 27, 19. It's known in Hebrew as terumah, and usually translated as offering. Let me give you an overview of our parasha before I introduce our guest. The people of Israel, the Torah portion begins, are called upon to contribute 13 materials, gold, silver, copper, blue, purple, and red dyed wool, flax, gold hair, animal skin, wood, olive oil, spices, and gems, out of which the Eternal says to Moses, They shall make for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell amidst them. The Torah portion continues on the summit of Mount Sinai. Moses is given detailed instructions on how to construct this dwelling place for the divine so that it could be readily dismantled, transported, and reassembled as the people journey throughout the desert on the way to the promised land. In the sanctuary's inner chamber, Behind an artistically woven curtain was the ark containing the tablets of the testimony engraved with the Ten Commandments. On the ark's cover stood two winged cherubim, hammered out of pure gold. In the outer chamber stood the seven-branch menorah and the table upon which the showbread, a particular kind of sacrificial offering, was arranged. The sanctuary's three walls were fitted together from 48 upright wooden boards, each of which was overlaid with gold and held up by a pair of silver foundation sockets. Surrounding the sanctuary and the copper-plated altar which fronted it was an enclosure of linen hangings, supported by 60 wooden posts with silver hooks and trimmings and reinforced by copper stakes. Well, it's very detailed, and yet it also begins with a uh, challenge uh, from the divine to the people of Israel. Uh, With me this morning from California is Rabbi Ari Mark Carton, who now serves as Rabbi Emeritus of Eitz Chaim Congregation in Palo Alto, California, where he served as rabbi and scholar in residence from 1996 to 2015. Prior to that, he was the executive director of the Hillel Foundation of Stanford University, also in Palo Alto, California, and a visiting scholar in the Stanford Program in Jewish Studies. Before moving to Palo Alto, he was a rabbinic student intern at Temple Sinai, a congregation affiliated with the reform movement in Washington, D.C. Rabbi Carton is a member of all three rabbinical associations of uh, 
predominantly associated with the United States, the conservative movement, the reconstructionist movement, and the reform movement. He has devoted his rabbinate to bridging gaps between these denominations within Judaism. He is a scholar, as his title implies. He has uh, finished a book um, on Judaism explained with computer metaphors entitled Mindware for God Wrestlers, Jewish Thought in the Age of Thinking Machines, and he's now completing a graphic novel entitled Prague's Golem, a story about the great Rabbi Lowe of Prague in the medieval period. It's a great pleasure to uh, welcome Rabbi Carton to uh, Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. Our names are not the same, even if that sounds like it on radio. Uh, welcome to our show. Thank you. And even though our names are not the same, people, when we were in rabbinical school together, used to say Carton and Garton and Garton and Carton. So here we are together on the exactly. same stage. <laughs> So, as Rabbi Carton suggested, we were ordained at Hebrew Union College at the same time nearly 50 years ago, um, and he has created a reputation as one of the great uh, scholars of Torah in our generation. I want to begin this morning with um, the challenging uh, way the Torah portion begins, and that is to make me a sanctuary. And perhaps you can explain to our listeners, the Hebrew for sanctuary is mishkan. Uh, tabernacle is usually the way it's translated. So for those listeners who know uh, of the tabernacle, uh, Rabbi, and for those who don't, explain to us what that is all about. So the phrase in there is verse 8 of chapter 25. Va'asuli mikdash. Mikdash comes from the word Kodesh which means holy, mikdash, therefore, is a holy place, which is a sanctuary. Veshachanti betocham, and I will dwell, shachain is to be a neighbor or to dwell among people. And veshachanti, I will dwell, and you think, they'll make me a holy place, I'll dwell in it. But no, I said, I'll dwell among them. And so, betocham, it's a, it's a very, um, it's one of those words where you get caught by surprise if you're actually paying attention. <laughs> so, um, so, the mik Dash is the holy place, and it's also the place of God dwelling, Mishkan. And what does Mishkan actually mean? I mean, it means, what does it mean for God to dwell? Since God is the, you know, is everything, everywhere, everything comes from God, where is God not? And and so the question is, what is actually dwelling there that God should say, I'm going to dwell there? So it sounds like it's an oxymoron. God is everywhere. God is certainly larger than one specific location. How is it possible, you ask our listeners to consider, that a building could contain or a structure uh, rather than the building that we now uh, perceive as synagogues or churches or mosques? How is one individual building able to contain a God who is the creator of all? Well, Solomon, when building the temple, asked that very same question, First Kings. He says, can God really dwell on earth? Even the heavens, heavens can't contain you. How much less this house I've built? So, you know, right there and there, the temple, the biggest thing. And, of course, these things were not as huge, but uh, 
I mean, as a matter of fact, the, the, the Mishkan and all the area around it was six of them would fit in a football field. But, but in any case, that's how small it was. And, um, uh, the center part, the Holy of Holies was only 15 by 15 feet, 15 by 15 by 15 feet cubed. It was not that big. So obviously nothing could be. So what it is, is the presence of God. That is, it's a, it's, it's kind of like a lens, a focal point where you can, you can experience God better. That is, and then if you look at all the details, we're not going to go through them because I mean, even just what you read is enough to glaze people over. And I, this is the kind of situation that people do. They, they begin to get to the details. It's like up to now, it's been really fun, you know, and okay, the laws, well, some of them are really ethical and meaningful. And now we're dealing with architectural structures. I mean, it's like, I, um, and so you glaze over, but if you count them all up and I did all that kind of stuff, you find that there were not 13, there are 15 things that out of which is made. I'll take a look at the thing I sent you again. 15 is yud Hey, which is God's name. Yah. So it's, it's God's presence, but also all the things, if you think of the things that are in the, in the building and all around it, it describes, I'm not going to go into the details because it will make them glaze over again. It's a person. It's a head and a body. It's as if God is a head and a body. And here's the weird part. On top of the ark that has the tablets, that has the Ten Commandments, you've got two idols. you got two cherubim. Right, the, the cherubim, um, which are usually described, well, how would you describe cherubim for our listeners who may not be familiar with the term? Well, you know, it's kind of funny. The, the, the same expression exists in French, mon petit chou, my little cabbage. The word karouf in Hebrew means a cabbage, but it also refers to something that people variously display as a sphinx. So you'll see that there are some who think that cherub is a sphinx. Then you get the, those who say, no, 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 it was kind of a baby angel. And that's where you get those things on Valentine's, you know, with the little baby angel. Um, R. Crumb did an illustration illustrated version of Genesis. It's an X-rated version, not, not because there's, you know, they're doing it for pornographic, pornographic reasons, but if you read the Bible, it's, you know, they're talking about what they're doing and they're naked and they're having sex. And so he's, he's straightforward on that. But he, there turned, God put two cherubim, two chruvim, to guard the way back to the Garden of Eden so he couldn't get into it. And his picture of that is of two camel-like dragons with a swirling sword around them, and they're winged. So it's pretty scary. So I want to bring you back to something you indicated right at the beginning. We have this commandment or this uh, proclamation that um, the Mishkan um, shall be built. Um, Just two weeks ago, the Jewish people read um, the story of the receiving of the uh, Aserata de Brot, the revelation that comes from God, it's portrayed both in the Torah and visually in the number of movies that have been made of that episode as uh, filled with pyrotechnical uh, special effects. And so we appear to have moved from that um, moment in which God is far beyond the scope of a building um, to this week's Torah portion, where it appears that the commandment, the proclamation is, I need this um, focus for you. 
Why isn't Sinai enough of a focus? Uh, well, there, there are a couple of things. I, I, it's interesting that you raise that point. I've been thinking this week as I was getting ready for this. Why does the building of the Mishkan follow the Revelation? And it follows it very closely. Um, let me just say two things. First, there is the miraculous, which actually happens here. So you know how the mountain is smoking in this fire? Well, same thing for the Mishkan. The sacrificial fire and smoke is supposedly like the pillar of cloud and fire that accompanied them from the Exodus. So, so you're talking about inside the Mishkan. Not inside the building. It's in the courtyard, so it could be seen. It goes all the way up. Right, where the sacrifices are made. Right, right. It's in the courtyard. So so it would, you know, it would give light at night. It would be the centerpiece of the camp of the Israelites. Kind of remember, this is what they needed there. So, But the second thing is, what happens, what's the last thing just before um, this, is you have the laws, but the very end of the revelation is how to build an altar. And the altar's got to be uh, built of rocks, uh, and you can't wave metal on it. You can't use metal. You have to natural rocks. It's fire on top of rocks, which is fire on top of Sinai which is the fire in the burning bush, which has now been translated into the fire on the altar in the outside of the Mishkan. So they're taking Sinai with them. That is, this is, so you have the, the tablets inside the Holy of Holies in the, in the tent part, the tent of meeting it's called, for Moses to meet God in the tent. And then outside you have this burning maw of God, so, you know, sucking up animal bodies. But you get the, the umbilical going straight up of the, the pillars of smoke and fire. And then you've got basically that little piece of Sinai because you've got the, the altar, which has got to be filled with dirt. And it, it kind of symbolizes the burning bush, Sinai, and now the altar. So Sinai, even as miraculous as an event as it is, um, is demystified in a way so that the Israelites can carry it with them. They can't carry the mountain with them. Right, right. And perhaps the Torah is saying that even the memory of that unique experience would dissipate, but the Mishkan becomes the traveling reminder of Sinai. Yes, it's the souvenir of the experience. You know, it's funny. I went to Sinai and all I got was this little altar. No, I think. <laughs> well, it's better than a T-shirt. It's better than a T-shirt. By the way, so as long as we're speaking about a Mishkan, the purpose of the Mishkan is to experience God. That is to make God more present in the lives of the people. Emmanuel means God is with us. So to make God immanent in, 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 with us. So Sinai is actually the transcendent God, the God who is far away at the top of the mountain. And the Mishkan, in philosophical terms, is the imminent presence of God. Yes, it's a physical something or other where you can experience the focus of God more intently. Because people who come closer, you know, in synagogues or in temples or whatever, they experience God more closely because they're looking for it. They expect it there. They're not expecting it downtown. You know, they're not expecting it in a Taco Bell. They're expecting it here because it's a place built for the experience. It's like a, it's like an observatory, a telescope, you know, to, to, to get the experience hyped up. But the thing is, you get this souvenir of the experience of Sinai. And in every synagogue, you get the souvenir of the experience of the Mishkan. And what is that? The Ner Tamid. 
So every synagogue has a near tamid, a, a regularly lit light that's over the ark, and the ark in the, uh, is the Ten Commandments, and the near tamid is the, is the is from the, uh, the the altar. And so you get those two pieces together: the altar, near tamid, eternal light, ark in the with the with the table, Torah in it. That's our little piece of Sinai that every synagogue carries with it. So for those who are not um, um, familiar with synagogue architecture, Rabbi Carton is reminding us that if you look um, to the front of the synagogue, usually on the eastern wall, where the Torah scrolls are housed, there is um, a curtain in front of the Torah scrolls, very much as it speaks to in this week's Torah portion. There is the Ner Tamid, this eternal light. In most synagogues, there's some sort of table, as I read in the intro, where the Torah is read. That's uh, a reminder of where the showbread was presented. And in many synagogues, there's also a seven-branch menorah, distinguished from the Hanukkah menorah, which is an eight- or nine-branch menorah. Um, so that's the um, souvenir that the Jews continue to bring with them wherever they worship. Um, these uh, artifacts of Sinai and the artifacts of the tabernacle. I want to move from that very um, theological perspective in which you kind of suggest these are the lenses through which Jews see God to a second question. And why do we have such specificity of how this should be built, whether it's 13 or 15 or 14 different uh, components, um, there is such specificity. And as you well know, the specificity appears to be of um, great value. It's not just build me it, it's I want jewels and I want the finest of skins um, some of which we would even question how they would get, like dolphin skins in the middle of the Sinai. Nobody knows what that word means. It's not dolphin, it's not bad. Right. So, I mean, some commentators think it even means worms, which is not helpful at all. But nonetheless, um, it's not helpful for a literal understanding of the text. It may be helpful for a homiletical meaning. So why is the Torah so filled um with this specificity of how to build this building, which, as you suggested, is going to be portable anyway. Yep. Well, I, first, the first answer of these is obviously nobody really knows. So here is my understanding. First of all, from chapter 25 of Exodus, where we're talking now, until chapter 10 of Numbers, this is all written by the P, priestly school of thought, that takes the entire center of the Torah. That is a whole book of Leviticus and a little bit of Exodus and a little bit of Numbers, and it puts it all together. And and um, the last thing you have in there is the cloud and the trumpets. Okay, you get it's it's very climactic. All I'm saying is that it's the what do we need this for? What does God need all this for? What are all these details for? Because it was so intently understood as being a symbol of the creation of the world. Can you uh, expand upon that a bit? Yes, Jewish mystical interpretation sees the uh, the construction of the Mishkan as 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 being a symbol of the construction of the world, and the details are eminently understandable 
by, you know, by homiletics, as you say, going off on sermons. I call it Jewish fan fiction, but uh, Bible fan fiction. But anyway, so all that stuff is, is, is there. But the Bible itself gives you that connection. So when Moses, by the way, there are two Torah portions of commandments and there are two portions of setting it up. And the very end of the setting it up, that, that the, uh, they, they, they surround the story of the golden calf, which, as it were, puts that gold that God wants in, in kind of a, a, a frame that says, you don't really want that gold. We don't need that gold. That cherub on top of the thing or the golden calf that, was on, that you built, that's not God. And so all this gold, that's not what God really needs. This is just a place for you to impress yourself to make your focus of God better. But this is not what God needs. That's what I would say on that level. It's interesting that as you spoke about um, these middle books of the Torah, a reminder to our listeners that the Torah has five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, as it's called in English, um, that the narrative portion from Genesis through um, the revelation stops, and we have not a narrative of stories, but we have this long description of priestly responsibilities and the house that the priests will have responsibility for, and that will continue through the beginning of Numbers, in which the narrative begins again till the end of Numbers, in which point Deuteronomy is a recap of the whole four previous books. Um, does that mean um, that the temple and the priestly uh, obligations are the central focus of uh, worship as understood by the Jewish people in the Torah? Well, I would say, because I'm you know, one of those historical critical guys, that the, uh, this is the way the priesthood looked at it. And they were the last uh, sages standing when the, second, when the first temple was destroyed, and they wrote, this, uh, they wrote this version of the Torah and put everything else into it. At least that's the way I look at things, just the way it looks to me. In any case, the center of this stuff is very full of details, as you notice. You know, it's got that many details when you deal with leprosy in the same source, you know. Right. Details and details and details and details. And, de- and this is how you work the, sac- the sacrifice for this and the sacrifice for that. The first five chapters of Leviticus, the sacrifice for this. And, the sa- and you put it here and you put it there. It's, it's really, a, it's, the details are explicit because they were dealing with things where they thought that if you didn't do it and you got out of line, you would be zapped, just like Aaron's two oldest sons were zapped on the day of their ordination because they didn't do it the right way. And so if you don't do it the right way, you will be zapped by God. And if you don't, and you got to put those details in there for that. But otherwise, like I say, there's the level of go ahead and find out what this means to the creation of the world because all these details are ramifying some. So there's two parallel dynamics at work. One is this um, insistence on detail, which would give consistency and continuity to the people and in fact help with the transition from uh, the Genesis family mode to the nation building mode. In nations, you need consistency. And then parallel to that is the power of the Genesis story, the power of creation. 
Um, and so does that mean that in some sense we have um, two different covenants? We have the covenant of creation and the covenant of uh, the priestly class? Yes, we do. We have the covenant. Well, we have several covenants, but yes, there is a priestly covenant. There's a way they went around it. And uh, it, it, my, my bar mitzvah portion actually is kind of interesting. It's the first chapter of Leviticus, and it spells out a sacrifice which was not being done anymore, even in the days of King David. I mean, it was, but it wasn't in, in terms of, you know, regular offerings. It, 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 and, and I don't need to go into that. That'd be too crazy. Uh, but, but, but the oldest parts of, of Leviticus and of the priestly stuff is language that's very, you know, it's like, it's like Shakespearean versions of the concepts as opposed to, uh, you know, Wild West versions or modern versions. Very different. So, so this week's Torah portion um, teaches us that we have um, no T-shirts, but we take with us from Sinai um, wonderful rocks and fire, which will accompany the Israelites as their souvenir. Right. And it teaches us that the specificity um, that we began to read of last week in Parashat Mishpatim carries over because this is the kind of specificity that God wants as part of that covenant. Um, and lastly, God says that I'm not residing external to you. I'm residing within you. That's right. Um, and as you indicated in your beginning, that the word Mishkan also has the root for Shachin, neighbor, uh, neighborhood. God is your neighbor. As God is my neighbor. <laughs> well, I want to thank my guest, Rabbi Ari Carton of uh, California, uh, Rabbi Emeritus of Eitz Chaim Congregation in San pa pa Alto, um, Northern California, um, for joining us and helping us have an introduction to the insights of this parasha. You can find a recording of this morning's conversation on the chri.ca website or on iTunes, or you can listen to it at 99.1 FM in the Ottawa Valley. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten, uh, thanking Rabbi Carton for joining me and wishing you, our listeners, shalom and have a good day.